0: it's wednesday november 15th 2023 and you're listening to radio free xp i'm joined by my co-host jesse alford hello and today we're talking to thomas Squayo. good morning thomas i i'm so excited to have you on because you were a client of pivotal cloud foundry i met you in the field and i couldn't believe what i saw we actually recorded Eight hours worth of what I saw with your team—that's still available, and we'll put it in the show notes. The opportunity to have you on and have this conversation, though, because I think you're the adult in the room about XP and leadership, and so we want to hear your journey. How did you come to this, and what do you think of it? And you know, we want you to put us as pivots on the couch. What are we missing? You've got some great ideas, and so we're just going to flow with that.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Um, well. I'd- Tony Jesse, thanks for the opportunity to uh, participate in this. I think that it's always good to kind of get the get the uh, message out there about what works and and how we've been successful together. Um, you know, as as you kind of alluded to, um, I started my career in in technology in the Navy. Uh, so uh, somewhere around like ninety nine two thousand, I had a boss. Um, I was part of a small web development team. Uh, we were basically uh, worked at a supercomputer center and then we were building the web applications that were, uh, you know, Internet facing that people could consume the models and, and access things and so on and so forth. And that included kind of the the overall organization presence as well as also the, the applications. Primarily, this was all JavaScript applications, you know, getting people to see the models move and things of that nature and so on. Um, and uh, as part of a small team probably about maybe five to 10 folks. And we had a new boss come into the organization. Um, He came out of uh, um, uh, teaching at Annapolis. And literally, we got to know each other. You know, he was really kind of a forward looking guy. And he walks into my office one day and drops uh, Kent Beck's uh, XP book on my desk. And goes, go read this. And then we're going to do that. And I was like, okay. And in the military, they're called orders for a reason. I mean, you don't really, they're not really negotiations. They're like kind of, okay, this is the how we're going to do it. And so really got an opportunity to kind of uh, get in there. And obviously this predated Agile by, I think, probably five, six years, something like that. And, um, you know, so what we really got is a small team of folks that really kind of had an opportunity to look at, how we were going to de- deliver work we were all co-located we all had the ability to kind of look at who our customers were we were the customers uh in the field at one time uh for the applications that we were building and it really kind of became one of those things where it was like less about the software development that we were doing because we were in a very rigid system um so obviously you think about like cmm level like four and five and you know this is a, a supercomputer computer center Go ahead.
0: We got, we, got to, we got to say what CMM is because for pivots, this will be completely unknown. They also don't know what a death march is. So sometimes we have to explain things. Capability sure. maturity model generated yeah. out of Carnegie Mellon University's computer science program. Yeah.
1: And I, and I think if you think about the, the levels of rigor, you have operational technology versus information technology, you have business systems and so on and so forth. And if you think about the operational technology, I I always come back to like air traffic control systems are usually CMM level four and five and so on and so forth. You know, uh, you know, the things that go into, um, you know, uh, missile systems and and healthcare systems and things of that nature, things that cannot fail. And if they fail, they usually multiple levels of redundancy down to uh, how they're going to be able to solve for. Um, So. NetNet is I, got a, I had an opportunity to work on a team very early on as an individual contributor, uh, I moved into a middle management position in that organization, and then really had the opportunity to kind of see they. you could take a more human-centered approach to things. So user-centered design, at the time I think it was called information architecture and all this stuff was kind of coming up at the exact same moment. So you saw this intersection of XP, user-centered design, the practices that were emerging around design thinking. And what I saw was that this very human-centric way was different than a waterfall, big bang, understanding or or the illusion of understanding of where things were going to end up, um, you know, a lot of specs and things like that. And because our team was so small and the internet was so new, it it was novel just to think of web application development as application development. And so we were thinking about it from that perspective. How do we bring more discipline to this as a tool set? And this was like, you know, early, early version control, uh, you know, things things about that. That was even a, a new thing for us at that time. So NetNet um, got out of the military in 2001, got recruited by um, McGraw-Hill, uh, joined their marketing department and in, in their, in their web team. And their web team was also responsible for some of their business systems as it faced, you know, the customer for everything from, you know, for, for example, the part of McGraw Hill that I worked for was the assessment division. And we had to do things like 100 percent recovery of any asset that we sent out to the customer. So every book, every um, you know, uh, test book, every answer sheet, everything like that that went out, we had to have it come back. And it was all, you know, pulled into a system where we actually did all the audit and recovery and so on and so forth. And it was everything from, you know, people getting reports to being able to uh, show chain of custody over things, all that kind of stuff. But we, de- I took that XP practice and at the time we, it was like, remember rational unified process or RUP? So it was kind of a combination of XP and the rational unified process. So um, we were a Java shop for the most part, you know, we were doing a lot of application development with BEA. Um, We were working on uh, building a lot of commercial systems for in a B2B context. And what ended up happening was um, we were starting to see that the ways we were working were becoming more uh, like what they would call agile. So we did a stand up three times a week. We would have, you know, uh, we would uh, plan our releases in, you know, six week increments and things of that nature. So you started to see the the grain size kind of come in, in a, a lot more focus, but what ended up happening was um we were working with um at the time pivotal labs we were building an online assessment system uh so rob me and um, sherry erskine and a couple other folks were brought in by um i believe they were brought in by accenture uh we were working so that the team was accenture pivotal and then because uh the team what we were doing uh pivotal brought in ThoughtWorks as well so you have know, comment
0: what, what year is this yeah
1: uh this is like 2001 one, two.
0: okay so, so you're you're in with XP Pivotal and ThoughtWorks yes the very beginning of the internet revolution okay Let, that helps set valuable context for everything that we'll talk about after
1: this right and the thing that's important about this is that um McGraw-Hill as an education company um was just outside the blast radius for the dot-com burst. And what happened was right after 9-11, uh, there was an act called No Child Left Behind. It was a huge domestic in- investment in education. It was key for the, um, uh, the Bush administration to be able to kind of have a win that way. And it did this injection into our industry where we had an opportunity to bring in, you know, best-in-class technology development. And in some of the cases of the people that were in our organization, we wouldn't have been, uh, you know, attractive to them in the startup, you know, kind of milieu. But what ended up happening was because that just evaporated, just got completely blown out. We had the opportunity to bring talent in that wasn't necessarily wouldn't usually be interested in us. Okay, And then because they came to us, we then also had the opportunity to bring their relationships and networks in. So Sherry was an, a member of our, our team, our program management team. She co-founded Pivotal with uh, Rob. And when they brought Rob in, I think Rob realized that we needed a bigger boat. So then he brought in ThoughtWorks or he and his team brought in ThoughtWorks. And so you all of a sudden re- realize that this you know, product development that's happening in this team is not happening in a way of anybody's ever seen before you know, not, not the Accenture team, not our McGraw-Hill team. I I would argue neither the Pivotal nor the ThoughtWorks team had seen it before, but because they believed in the similar ethos and how they were going to approach their, their work and effort, what they were able to develop in a very rapid f- f- fashion was something like, you know, the industry hadn't even seen before. And so we built our, um, I'd say probably second or third generation online assessment system that was being delivered for like you know large scale programs uh, formative summative benchmark assessments you know really huge amount of interactivity and then one of the things that we also did was we brought in another firm called Roundbox Global uh Roundbox Global was entirely focused on the uh the rich internet application that kind of that that experiential component so on and so forth um so play it forward a few years. I go. I leave McGraw Hill. I go independent consulting, and I joined Roundbox as their uh, uh, as part of their strategy team. And so we modeled our work on that very much that that highly interactive kind of a lot of flash, a lot of Java. You know that kind of at, at that point. This is before, long before uh, Steve Jobs put a bullet in the entire uh, that entire subset of technologies. But anyway, but. Um, you know, we modeled the behaviors that we had inside Roundbox on what we learned from XP, what we learned on being on those teams, and then what we saw emerging in Agile. So we really, while I was at Roundbox, uh, I was I was on the team that we really kind of looked at how do we go from describing our work in the Rational unified process, working with customers where we were delivering on their behalf, where they were very much kind of viewing things as waterfall or, you know, kind of outsourced. You know, this is back when uh, outsourcing was kind of the big deal uh, way of doing it. So we created a, um, some offices and some low-cost markets where we had a lot of talent. We were near shore. Uh, we had teams in Costa Rica. Um, and then we also had teams in, in North America and really kind of saw that as, as, a, as a way forward. So, you know, we sold that company in 2009. In 2010, I became the CIO for a company called Measure Progress again education assessment in the market and so on and so forth and so um what we ended up doing was we had an opportunity to uh you know do kind of the next generation of an assessment system so everybody had to have one you know you're kind of in this market where to compete you're developing and delivering large-scale systems that have significant liquidated damages with them uh so in that and that basically means that if you fail to deliver on a contract, they can recover the value of that contract or more uh, because of things like this is, you know, this is the education system for a state, you know, or a a conglomerate of states and so on and so forth. So um, Roundbox was no more. Uh, I didn't know where uh, Rob me had gone off to, but um, at the end of the day, um, I did know the folks at ThoughtWorks really well. So I ended up bringing in ThoughtWorks and we ended up doing, I'd say probably two or three years worth of work uh, you know, I had helped them build out their Porto Alegre office in Brazil. We worked with their teams in North America. We worked with their teams in China and India, um, all over, like very much like a different deployment model. And being in the Boston corridor, uh, Martin Fowler was right there. So he was able to come into our office and we would do lunch and learns and he would be, you know, talking to our teams and our, and the teams that I had uh, was really one of those things uh, to an earlier conversation that uh, we had uh, Jesse uh they were all over the map you know from a capabilities perspective so they would use agile the words like agile and talk about how they were doing their work as as an air cover for being cowboys you know like nothing would get the production you'd have these different levels of capability in these teams and so on and so forth so what we really did was instead of going and saying hey we're going to uh transform this organization what we did is we said we have to turn this it team around So they are seeing what good looks like, but being embedded in them. So we didn't bring ThoughtWorks in. And we also brought in an organization um, called Avanica that was out of uh, Costa Rica as well. Um, And that team became our team. So we had our engineering team paired right alongside ThoughtWorkers, right alongside the folks from Avanica. And what we ended up doing was as we gained greater capability in our own engineering team, we would start to bleed off those other organizations as needed. And um, you would start to see our, our labor arbitrage model mix with agile, agile software techniques, XP, and so on and so forth. And this was 2010, 11, 12, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I didn't really take to living in New England well, because uh, the weather shows up at your house uh, which is kind of not great. Uh, so I got <laughs> myself back to California and then I did two startups in a row. Um, uh, you know, like it, startups have about a, a, an 80% failure rate and, uh, these fit right in that category. Um, you know, in this case, one of them was, uh, oversubscribed and over, um, over invested. And then the other one was, uh, too early for what the market was going to bear. Um, so in 2015, I joined uh, school messenger as their chief technology officer. Um,
2: I have a brief it. question before sure. we, we continue the story. You, you were at two failed startups. Was that a waste of time? No, not at all.
1: No, I was, it was, it was extremely valuable because what my next phase of my career was acquiring quite a few companies. That were coming out of startup, they've gone through, you know, product market fit, and they've been able to achieve some degree of scale. And being able to understand kind of what the uh, the degrees of ownership that the teams had over what they built, understanding how the, their levels of capability and maturity actually would uh, be uh, appropriate for what we were integrating, and then also um, really understanding that typically startups have to do a ton of things with very little you know there's there's the illusion of of the startups that have you know tons of money kind of coming in pouring out their ears and everything like that but what I've seen is most of them are scrappy they're small teams they're really capable and they're really bought into the outcomes that they want to drive and that was something i that was super valuable for me personally
2: and did you personally make enough money during that time?
1: Did I personally make enough money um so so i when I went from my being the CTO or, uh, you know, uh, CIO for a, uh, a company, 150 to $250 million company right. uh, to doing a startup. I reverted my salary back to about where I was in 2003.
2: Right. And I and did that-,
1: that as my investment of my energy, like what was the minimum amount you could take to be able to be successful and not burden the, the very nascent startup.
2: Right, right. But like, the sorry, the reason I'm asking this is not really because I'm questioning your decisions. It's because working for startups is something that I think pivots have too much of an immune system for. And they think about it as being like, oh, you lose all your equity. Most startups fail turns into most working at a startup is a losing bet. And I want to challenge this because not only is it incredibly valuable from a career space, but people make enough money, right? Startups yeah. can pay you enough yeah. so that you're not like, Losing your shirt when the startup does whatever the startup's going to do that isn't a huge and remunerative exit,
1: right? Well, so so there's a couple. Of, uh, let's unpack that a little bit, and I and, yeah. I, and I I'm I'm in a complete agreement there uh, because the thing that I thought of is um, I joined as the chief technology officer and chief product officer, and as a leader in that in those startups, it was not my me taking full boat or taking a large salary was not gonna be driving the outcome that we wanted. We wanted, It would make more sense for me to take a lower salary, take equity and then push more towards the salaries that we could uh, hire engineers on. But I, an example of it was, uh, we brought in our first engineer uh, and this guy was, we, bu- we brought him in out of a gaming company. And this is at my, my the startup called DeClara. Uh, brought him in, uh, the first thing he ends up doing is he's you know really junior. But what I watched is his career ladder up so quickly because there was there was no lane that he couldn't go into, take advantage of. He had the opportunity to kind of see all these skills. And again, kind of coming back to, um, you know, uh, Agile and XP, you know, those were the practices that we had uh, brought into the organization because it was a small co-located team. We were able to uh, do a lot of interesting work and so on and so forth. We did the exact same thing. So I left that startup after about a year. and uh, did another one, and that then, when, and then when we did the next one, we did it with the exact same model from an engineering standpoint. We just kind of approached it from how you do a human centered delivery or development, where you're not necessarily, uh, you don't everything is not known at the outset, you know. Right. And I think that you know it's it's a it's, a, it's an experience that I think that you cannot replace. I mean, you go raise money, uh, you go develop and put something into production and you have to go get product market fit and you have to go through all those phases there is no business school that teaches
2: this this right. is something that is like trial by fire at its most and being at labs won't teach you this either so uh, the the point that i want to finish out for our audience before we move along is you cannot avoid startups if you want to learn what these environments Act like you can't completely stay out of them. You can take them as customers, you could work at them, you can study them. But, like startups, we have this immune immune response to we see list of uh, job listings that have terms like fast paced dynamic environment. And we have an immune, a mimetic immune complex that responds to that and is like, oh, I'm going to be exploited. I'm going to be asked to work long hours. I'm going to be uh, told like everything is going to be my job and I'm going to be held accountable for everything. Those are not the only ways to interpret the what is meant by something like a fast paced dynamic environment it can also be this situation where someone's career is advancing extremely rapidly and they're gaining access to a wide experience or wide variety of experiences and opportunities to grow and i i just when we see one of these stories that has a couple failed startups in it it's a great opportunity to be like these are enormously valuable experiences so So thanks for startups and I've had yeah. two
1: successes and two failures. And the, and the two times they were failures, the only one of them was really wound down. So I left Declara and it was still a going and growing concern. I just, mm-hmm. it wasn't a fit for me personally. Yeah, yeah. When I with with Continuum, which was the second one, uh, we had product market fit and we started to have customers. But the deal was, is that our cut our, our, our burn rate and our lift rate weren't in alignment to each other. So we decided to wind the company down. That's when I joined School Messenger. And School Messenger had just been acquired by Intrado. And because of that acquisition, what they were starting to do is they were like, look, we want to make sure that we're able to work inside this massive multi-billion dollar company without necessarily being ground into powder Mm -hmm. by the the larger entity. And so they were, uh, I think at the time, it was about a $70 million organization. There's about a I'd say probably 50 to 70 people in the engineering organization, but probably about 300 people in the total company. And so if you think about that as as kind of uh, an acquisition, um, what's happening is now you have a multi-billion dollar company that is operating as a telco with very much a waterfall telco CMM level, you know, three to five kind of view of the world. And they kind of turn that eye of Sauron on on a, a young cloud native company or kind of a hybrid company, because we were using a combination of uh, uh, co-lo- co-located um, infrastructure, as well as also uh, early AWS stuff. And this is around 2015. So, you know, you're starting to see this is two years after, you know, Amazon was really kind of getting to scale and they were releasing like a new product, I'd say every 10 minutes, you know, it felt like it was like, you know, it was almost like a kind of like that that tennis ball machine where it's like running too fast and there were just new products coming out and they were like, You know, they were acquiring companies or becoming part of the portfolio and so on and so forth. And I had uh, we had an architect, uh, two architects that were on the team that were very much like, okay, we are going to they very much got cloud native practices. They very much got composite application development. But what they were horrible at was the methodologies, XP, Agile, so on and so forth. And because I joined when I joined the organization, they did a version of Agile, but it wasn't very Satisfying for either the people inside the organization or the outcomes that we wanted to drive. So, do you have a comment?
0: Yeah, you said magic words. They got oh. X, Y, Z things, but they were terrible at the process. But yeah. yet, when you when you go to places, you look and you're like, okay, well, you guys get this, but you're terrible at
1: process. That's calling the baby ugly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, being being the Apex Technology executive. The first thing I did is I said, "Okay, we are not going to go and say." And you can never tell people that they're 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 horrible at it. What we're going to do is we're going to go and say, "All right, let's do a retrospective over what's working and not working." And then what we did was we then said, "Okay, how do we go back to basics? You guys already are developing software and delivering it out in the market. You have product managers and people that are engaged and so on and so forth." So what we had to do is kind of distill practices down to what they needed to be. And any, anything followed dogmatically is going to be just as deadly as it, as it is if you're, you're not like, like one of the key tenets of both XP and Agile is you got to customize it to your local environment. And so what we had is very common. People would have the book, if you will, and they go, this is how we're going to do it. And then they try to grind that, prop, that, that kind of generic version of the process and it wouldn't satisfy their needs. So what we had to do is work with the team. So they developed something that was working for them.
2: Okay, I love how often these books get referenced and it's very easy to find a paragraph or a chapter at the beginning of the book. That's like, don't do this dogmatically. This is a toolkit that will help you understand how to apply. And then it's like, that is just the chapter that gets skipped or like it, it. You can't dogmatically implement. Don't do this dogmatically. Like there's no, uh, chapter and verse way to do it. And so it just like becomes this blank out space in the book. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free XP. I'm your host, Jesse Alford, and along with my co-host, Tony Hansman, we're interviewing Thomas, and I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Let's, let's... It's Squail. Squail. Okay. Thomas Squail. Just start at the top for that whole thing and get Squail right. Great. Yep. Thomas Squail. Uh, you're listening to Radio Free XP. I'm your host, Jesse Alford, and along with my co-host, Tony Hansman, we're interviewing Thomas Squail.
1: Um so uh so that team uh, i I was only in that team for probably about eight months before I became the chief architect for all of Entrato uh, and I was responsible for uh, all of their transformation which meant that i was pair i was uh, part of the senior uh, IT team uh, at the corporate and we let, we started to lay out our technical strategy for where we were going to go and that meant that uh, so that was 2016. Uh, we announced that we were going to uh, retain a banker. And I don't know if you've ever been in an organization that retains a banker. That basically means that you're going to uh, auction for private equity. So we went from publicly listed to pro- to, to selling ourselves off the market and then in turn uh, going to private equity. So the strategy we had laid out for ourselves in early 17 was we were going to um, uh, Let's just taking out really,
0: Let's just—we're going to pick up with strategy in 2017. But will you also do a readout on what private equity means? Because if we're going to talk about what pivots might do, they—they're go, going to need a gloss on what private equity is.
1: Sure, sure. So, um, so there are multiple ways of uh, companies to operate. One of them is to be publicly traded. One of them is to be privately held, and the other one is to be uh, not for profit. Okay. Uh, and, then, and then there's obviously the public sector with government organizations and so on and so forth. If you're privately held, you means you're privately owned. And one of those things and ways that an organization can be owned is by private equity. Private equity is an investment instrument that usually means that they're taking a distressed asset or a set of uh, non-optimized assets and they're stitching them together. The strategy you'll hear is called a string of pearls, and they will then modernize transform and optimize those assets to be able to gain greater efficiency and what they're usually doing is they're not only looking to grow the top line growth but they're also looking to maximize ebitda which is earnings before interest taxes and depreciation and amortization and what that ends up being is that you have you have to work more efficiently and this is really important to our story okay i I think that understanding this is really key okay So we got acquired in May, uh, or we were announced for acquisition in May of 2017. We had already laid out a platform-based strategy using Pivotal Cloud Foundry to go after, I'd say probably we were going to do 10 applications. Okay. So in 2016, again, I know I'm a broken record. I brought in ThoughtWorks. We did a bunch of work on our digital transformation strategy and so on and so forth, what we could do and so on and so forth. And one of the, the things that I was asked by my boss at the time was, We have a global fleet of data centers that our teams don't want to use. It was somewhere between 90 and 180 days just to get a a VM provisioned. And that did not mean it talked to the internet. Okay. So that was, it was kind of the dark times. Okay. So you had this opportunity where you've been announced for transaction by a private equity firm. They go into a quiet period where they do their due diligence. And then in November of 2017, uh, we, we the acquisition was kind of done and then we move into their portfolio. And that was with the Apollo. Group. Okay, that 10 applications that we were going to optimize and put on platform, they were like, yeah, that's cute and all. We want to see the entire portfolio be able to be evaluated. And there are two kinds of applications that we really need to think about because this is basically large-scale distributed systems for the most part. Um, there are streaming applications and there are web applications. Web applications are in Pivotal's Cloud Foundry's milieu. It is definitely a direct hit, you know, as long as you're gonna, but a good portion of our application portfolio is streaming. Okay. So that meant we needed to be able to operate multiple operating models to be able to deliver these technologies. And how do you do that in a way that isn't going to say, oh, you're either a first class citizen over here, you have our kind of, uh, you know, our, um, it's not standards, it's all, we'll call them, uh, you you know, the, the best practices, if you will, and so on and so forth. But you had to have this ability to modernize all the teams. Is
0: there a question? In 2017, how many applications are we talking about?
1: Uh, 700, 750, something Great. like that. Great. So, I mean, so they- you're, you're talking about an engineering team of about 3,500, 22 locations and geographies. You're talking about 70 data centers, you know, greater than 1,800 square feet globally. Um, you know some of them up to an, in excess of 20,000 square feet. Um, you know you're talking about uh, you're talking about a network operator and virtual network operator for telcos in multiple markets. South Asia, uh, Australia, um, you know globe this is a global operation. So yeah, Th- okay. this
0: is this is what most people in technology, even most people deeply in technology don't understand is the the heavy weight infrastructure, heavy heavyweight infrastructure. Right. I'll cut through all of that by saying the story is you have a 700 applications and what percentage of them were addressable by a product like Cloud Foundry?
1: Um, so I think that we assessed probably about 350 to 400 of them as candidates. Um, and then we kind of looked at them as we were going to either uh, make them 12 factor applications they had to get at least five factors in just to be able to run them on platform. You had to be able to get them to over a certain tipping point to be able to get advantage of uh, the platform where it wouldn't be a lift and shift. Uh, we had to be able to deliver enough value. And there was kind of three stratas that we looked at. Was teams that were going to gain competitive advantage through the 5S framework on platform. There were teams that were going to be able to optimize in that being able to take care of and actually, uh, you know, move their application set forward. And there were teams that were already cloud native and we did not put them on the platform because that would have regressed them. They were already kind of out in front. They deeply coupled to the IaaS of their choice and we were not necessarily looking to claw them back. So what we did was we kind of looked at a couple things here. Um, so you got a, a yeah, comment?
0: I just, just, just for so many pivots who worked on this, I got to go to the field and I got to see a guy like Thomas pick this siege engine up and I got to see him turn it against these giant 30 years of smeared technology and just start brute force addressing half of the problem. Hey, this, these things might be addressed here. In the end you filter down to probably less than half, but
1: I think we we I think we actually went after 120 to 200 apps on platform. Um, but we retired about 200 apps because what we were able to do is look at so so you think about uh, technology and technical debt. It's a geology. There are layers. It's like you have different layers, decision makers, people that have come in, new techniques being applied, and so on and so forth. And sometimes it's like okay, we can we can move this you know, metastasized tumor onto the platform, or we could actually rip it out and replace it and then just build applications directly on platform where they are taking advantage of all the abstraction and all the bells and whistles that we wanted to do. And that was equally an option. Okay, so when we worked, when we looked at and worked with our teams, we had, you know, uh, so I worked with the global CIO and the global CIO had a chief of staff I was the CTO. I was uh, chief technology, global chief technology officer and, and, and core engineer. You know, those are the two things that I had. So that meant public cloud, all those relationships, uh, the platform, how we were going to abstract all of those technologies, how we were going to engineer operations. Because I always kind of viewed, so the kind of core to my ethos is that operations is an engineering function. It is not anything else. It is just, if you treat operators as engineers, they're going to think like engineers. And that is something that we felt that was super valuable. So we had the platform and then the platform team. That platform team was responsible for all of our negotiations with the hyperscale providers. And then in turn, then we had a an enablement team that was made up of a cross section of, you know, technical fellows, senior engineers, junior engineers, and so on and so forth. And that was a kind of ever evolving SWAT team we never said nobody was permanently assigned to it uh those folks that were on that team were usually made up of different engineering teams throughout the organization because i always felt that no engineer buys from a senior executive they always buy from their peers they always kind of go and they have and when i say buy, i can give you a remit and say bang you're going to go do this and chances are you're going to resist But if you go and you're able to have a conversation with somebody that's seen success on the platform and also speaks your language and doesn't you know you know speak an executive language and so on and so forth you're going to do the work and what we did with that enablement team was if i had to uh fund resources in a team that would enable our work i would do it through that team and then i would go buy resources for teams that were underperforming or not delivering on my expectations and that went. I funded people in security. I funded people in networking. I uh, funded people in our, our data teams, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, the, when I, I mean, this is part of, you know, le- leading up to talking to you starts at a point where I'm like, these guys paid for two contractors for the networking team to clear networking request backlog. You were just like, I'm not having, a, I'm not having a hold up where I don't need one, and you just solved it with money, like. This single act evinces this whole other worldview about the path to production okay i i'll I'll roll off on going insane here, but when I saw how you approach this and how you use the tools because it's not doctrinaire at all, yet you acknowledge every bit of model in process, and you've just done this and so okay i'll uh, I, you know fanboy well,
1: I think that one of the key things was that we had we had an operator, uh, a, a VP, an operator, who thought like an engineer. So what I did is I had him run the platform. So he had he knew where all of the bones were, all the buried bodies and everything like that. He knew how to navigate the organization in a way that no outsider ever would know. And he led that function for us. I had another person uh, who you know, Terry Miles, who was our platform owner, He was a product leader who took the platform as a product and and took that discipline as it went across the organization. So if you think about that, you have an operator who thinks like an engineer who knows the organization. So if I funded a two resources out of networking, I didn't do it as though I'm going to go and say these people now work for me, but they're embedded in your organization. No, what we did is we just said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to reallocate money, and this is something that we are reporting all the way up to the to the CEO on a monthly basis. And if I come back and I'm red, and I, and I and 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 being you know in rag status, if you're red, all it means is that you're escalating up. Okay, it means that the problem is being solved and it requires greater than the the teams itself. I assume that any project that's operating in green just is operating early." You know, I expect you're going to go to Amber and I expect that red is going to require some escalation. But we were reporting red. And if I was reporting the same issues, red over and over again, chances are you would have been working with my successor. You know, so I just said, OK, you got it. This is a money problem. You know, any problem that can solve be solved with money is not really a problem. OK, you know, it just you got to manage through it. So it wasn't really that big a deal. So anyway, not net net is that um, coming back to the original point was that We took a platform strategy. We took a large or uh, how we were going to work with the hyperscale providers. The original remit was how do we make our on-prem data centers as attractive as the hyperscale providers? And the way we did that was through Pivotal Cloud Foundry being overlaid over our VMware ecosystem and so on and so forth. Okay. So we went from 90 to 180 days to be able to provision a VM and get it to face the internet to on-demand. Okay. And the reason why it was that we went from from... 180 to on demand was because everything that was managed on the platform was managed. So 3,500 people managing a platform with 12 people globally for all the organization running 200 apps over uh, over three environments on-prem in Azure and also in GCP. Uh, we didn't put it, we had it for a while on AWS, but we found that the teams that were typically on AWS were t- very tightly coupled already and we weren't getting the amount of value so we just spun down those environments but what we were able to do is that applications that were relatively stateless and didn't have a significant data footprint we could move them around to the hyperscale providers based on our negotiated agreements and the and whatever our commit levels were and so that gave us a lot more flexibility we were at one time going after a data fabric strategy similar to what we were doing with Pivotal but we were trying to cobble it together and we were never able to make it work OK, that was one of the areas that we always kind of we, we thought we could take this same thing. But data has gravity in a way that, um, you know, applications in some cases do not. So that was just one of our observations. So so that is that we dealt with process separate than we dealt with pre- platform. So the teams that were moving on and off of platform and everything like that. The reason why I mentioned the, the chief of staff earlier is that he was a, a, a great advocate for large scale agile. So we use scaled agile framework, but in right alongside that scaled agile framework, any of those teams that were doing engineering, we also brought XP practices and the way we would evangelize for those XP practices, we'd be like, look, we have this enablement team. We will put you through a series of dojos at our expense to be able to get you up to speed. And if at the end of that period, you are not, you know, interested or on on board, you know, we are going to understand that, you know, we're probably going to look at how we're going to evaluate this team differently. Okay. So I have
0: to, I have to put my punctuation in here because most of our clients, they, they would do this single threaded version of what you're doing. I showed up at a continuous integration dojo. I was a, I was invited just to come talk about stuff. And, I'm like, this is great. You guys, like I've seen people do this, but you've really got it. This is Terry miles. I mean, I I could go crazy about Terry miles for a half hour. And he's like, yeah. And then as I come to talk to him, he's like, oh, we have transformation models. CI is just one thing we have to teach people. We also have to teach people financial literacy as an engineer. And we do that too. And I lost my mind because you had taken the technology and you put it in a full people structure. And you were executing at a scale no other customer was executing. That y- you had the num as far as I had I saw with any customer you had the best overall view and integration of all of this. And you know, there, like I said, there's there's six or eight hours of you and your team describing what you did, and so we'll tag that in the show notes. But yeah, it's all there. You were doing it at the time, and. I haven't seen anyone, I haven't seen anyone since do it. And no one. So do you know anyone who took your playbook?
1: Well, um, uh, Comcast, uh, did it. Um, I think Ford took it. We took from them, they took from us. Um, so the thing is, is that we, we were, you know, um, we, we did, we stole like artists. So we, we looked at it as, Hey, you know what? There's great thinking out there. Um, so I think that one of the things that's important about this is that, um uh, People like Matt Nelson, who was running our relationship at the time, really was like, "Look, we got to be successful together." And you know, I kind of looked at it like this. I mean, like I would evangelize for for pivotal. Pivotal would make sure that I was successful. It was a it was definitely a symbiotic system, without a doubt. I've you know, I, at the time I had twenty years, of, almost twenty years, I've known Rob Me. Um, you know, when I had to sit down with people that you know weren't going to make the cut because they weren't going to be able to adopt these kind of things. We did it in a human way. We never kind of looked at like the engine, like the, the, the decisions to uh, take on or move a technique through or take a practice through or anything like that. What we saw is that teams that operated on the platform might've evolved off the platform because that was a part of their engineering journey or their architectural journey, but they didn't ever go back and regress in old behaviors, you know, to like, the golden path to production was for, for us a a concept. You know, and not only did it, you know, we had Concourse and we also had you know uh, uh, Ansible, and we they were literally like side by side. And we'd be like, hey, I don't care which one you are going to use. I just care that you have the discipline to use these things as you move through the process. And then I don't, I am never going to prescribe to the teams that they have to use a tool. What I am going to say is, you have to have these behaviors. And if these behaviors you're getting through, you know, CircleCI or Radian or something like that, I'm like, hey, I don't care as long as you're operating at that level. But I am going to give you a tool that will then in turn be supported as a platform that you will get white glove service from. Okay. If you have an issue with your networking, we will solve that for you. You have a security issue. You want to have, you need to have a Vericode audit or Black Duck over top of it. If you're already in the platform, we got you covered. We, were, we went from, uh, so we went from like subversion to GitLab to GitHub. And then GitHub started to take features that were in Veracode. And then it became a service contract discussion. Where are we going to spend the money so we're not duplicating things? The engineering teams did not care about that. They were un- unencumbered by any of that stuff. And we were able to manage it. And at one point we went from about, I'd say probably about 750 plus operators inside the organization Down to about a hundred total. Okay, we went from about 3,500 engineers to probably about 2,000. Okay, and the way that that ended up happening was we retired applications, we became better in our practices, we became more optimized. But what was important was that we never degraded anything from a capability perspective, or from either a scalability, uh, you know, a uh, security standpoint. Uh, You know, if you think about these things moving through. You know, stability, scalability, security. What was their speed and time to market? How we're actually delivering this? What was the cost base for it? All of those things were just kind of like these are these are like the this, the the CIO and CEO. They were like, look, man, you cannot put this in and then take us from a operating level of a, a ten and move us to a six. What you needed to do is take us from an operating level of ten and move us to like fifteen, and that's what we did. You know, and that's so any of those teams, and 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 at the end of the day, I mean, like um, I moved out of that role as a corporate CTO, and I moved into one of the business units, and the practices that the business unit was doing were all around uh, process methodologies, large scale agile XP practices, and so on and so forth. But they were all tightly coupled to the IAs. and so when I started, when I worked work with those folks, I would be, I wouldn't go in and be like. You know where's my uh where's my platform no no no. where are the behaviors that i wanted to see and they already they had adapted and adopted them and they customized them to their needs
0: we're going to do a quick station id this is radio free xp and i'm joined by jesse alford and our guest is thomas squayo today thomas uh, we're the other big conversation we have on deck is you've done all of this i you, you when I talk with you, I realize like asking you questions about what you think about XP and stuff like that. It's almost a joke because you have forgotten more than most people are going to know about it with this long implementation career. And you show something that is often knocked against XPers, which is you guys are too doctrinaire. And I, I think a true XPer is like, there's a lot of process. And if you don't recognize that those processes are valuable, you're kind of crazy. And XP is a coherent set of processes, w- w- which, you know, you can get some of the practices in and you can get not get some of the others, but you can't deny that there's a practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a body, there's a corpus of knowledge that's been created by experts in many fields that you could draw from. I'm a fan of XP, I'm a fan of the Dora uh, research. Um, I think that the principles that Pivotal and ThoughtWorks had uh, around Agile and Agile software development, XP, and all these kind of things, um, i if an organization is not going to operate this way, I won't work there. It just I, I mean there's just it's just not a it's but, not a healthy environment. Well, I mean, and and not- let me
2: there's something about it takes some sophistication to identify an organization that will or will not operate this way, but honestly it doesn't take that much. Uh, let, let me unpack that a little bit. The things that you're talking about around like oh, we're going to have services and they're going to just take care of these large swaths of common problems. We hear a similar thing in uh, federal customers who have issues around authorizations to operate where you can bundle this up and say like, look, this is fully delegated. There's a transference of fitness from application teams to the platform teams, where the platform lives or dies on all these things that are usually necessary to get an individual thing into production. And then the the application is only responsible for the application slice of what usually goes on there. And then I see this being done in a company. When I say being done, I need to correct myself. I see this intention being expressed in a company like VMware that's like, hey, IT is going to provide these platforms or these uh, uh, services that will help you deal with upcoming requirements around packaging legibility and security. Right after the solar winds uh, thing that happened, uh, you, you know, you see people saying like, "Oh, we have to solve this," and then they don't offer this white glove level actually solves your problem, actually interactive, actually collaborative solution like behavior based model of approaching the problem. They start producing this churn of white papers and initiatives and nonsense that just doesn't meet application team needs. It doesn't meet business needs, but it meets some kind of organizational metabolism need, right? It it meets some need of the board and the executives and the people in these positions to produce activity or plans. So how do you tell the difference if you're looking at an organization and they're saying, oh, yeah, we're going to create a system, whether they're calling it a platform or a product or a service or whatever, that's going to take these roadblocks out of the way. How do you tell the difference between something that is absolutely not going to do that while talking about it constantly and something that is going to be a place you can work? It's usually a conversation with finance.
1: So, if Fascinating. finance If finance has a conversation where they're going to think about things in an annualized billing cycle and they're funding initiatives where they have set expectations of value capture uh, at the outset, so a business case that says we're going to spend a million dollars and in five months you're going to get X and then it's going to be done and then we're going to move on to the next initiative, I pretty much say that that's going to be an organization that's a death march. And when I say a death march, what I'm talking about is that there is going to be no humanity in it. There's going to be a, uh, they're not looking at outcomes, they're looking at meta work. And the way I think about it is that um, if you think about funding long running teams, if I'm having a conversation with an with a finance organization and they're thinking about a portfolio of long running teams that are going to be operating at the discretion of the relationship between the product team and the engineering team, that is a healthy way. Then, then there's a lot of latitude to work inside. The challenge is that um, I call it the size of the canvas problem. A large organization with a large canvas has a lot more opportunity to be more creative. If you're really tight in your canvas, meaning you have a very small team with a very small set of operating service contracts and so on and so forth, your, your issues might not be an optimization problem. Your issues might just be like, how can you iterate the practices and, and, and ways of working quickly enough to be able to deliver value? And I think that, um, You know, a CEO will very commonly think that they're operating in a way that in actuality, the finance officer or the the, might have a very different view of the world. So I think that's where I kind of looked at it from my perspective. So um, I invested as much of my time with procurement and finance as I did with my engineering leaders. And every single one of my engineering leaders that was a director has moved up in their career Every VP that worked for me has moved on to a C-level position in their career. And the way I looked at it was, if you're going to be leaving me, please be leaving me for something that is going to be rewarding for you in your career. Because I've always kind of viewed all of the relationships that I have, are they span beyond the borders of the organization that I met them in. You know if they're good people i want to know where they are like like i i literally have a, a document at any point where oh you need a portfolio guy here's five guys that i know that do this work you need a program officer boom i know five guys that do this work and it's what kind of organization are you and, and so on and so forth but jesse to answer your point is my, you know it really comes down to how does the organization govern itself
2: right but organizations are um they don't have values and they lie and you, you said you talked to the finance person. This is different. This finance person has values and they're capable of potentially telling the truth. So I think this is really interesting that like, okay, an organization is gonna operate a way that is determined by how it allocates budget. Mm-hmm. And you can have competent managers and you can have competent engineers. You can have leadership that you like, that are nice peoples, and then you leave and you turn around and say like, wow, that was incompetent. And I've just done this with VMware, right? So I I like people at VMware. I'm friends with people at VMware. And I want to say, I didn't have incompetent managers or directors or executives when I say that it's an incompetent organization. I think I had incompetent finance, but I never saw those people. I never communicated with those people. I had almost no awareness of the possibility of influencing those people. And maybe I didn't even have it. Maybe that's one of the structural issues with VMware was that no one was engaging them that way. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to
0: try to cut a huge amount of violent agreement because my only experience is that finance is the only thing that matters to. The only customer that even mattered to Cloud Foundry was actually the finance team. And to the extent that we knew that and could prosecute that, we were very successful. But to the extent we could not do that, we were not.
1: And well, there, look, there, there, are three, there are three parts that you, you have to consider. So finance is representative of one of those parts. So the program office and the transformation office. So, those that's that's the three stakeholders that essentially have you know skin in the game and have to be aligned. And the chief of staff that I mentioned earlier, he ran the program office. The transformation office was run by this, like, you know, I'll call it the star chamber that they brought in of consultants and so on and so forth that we had to be able to operate inside. But our way of operating with them was through finance. So, if I had a uh an FPA, uh, financial planning and uh, Um, basically a strategic finance person that was helping me uh, work alongside this. I had to make sure that they understood the analogies of why we were doing things that they could be in the room without me or any technical person in and evangelize for what we were doing. I had to make sure that the transformation office knew the same things and I had to make sure the program office knew the same things. So most of my job was lateral and up. Okay. What I expected my team to do was to have the latitude to operate without necessarily coming back for permission for everything they needed to do. And I knew that some of the things were that were being done were like relationships where people had, you know, 15 years of working together where they were like, look, I need to get, get something done, you know, on the side. And one of the things that we needed to do was we needed to get all of the work of the organization on the book. And if it was in the book, then it was actually real. And if it was off the book, then it wasn't real. Okay, and that was something that was really important for this. And I think that
2: if you, if, if I, if I, go ahead, Jesse. Uh, yeah, I have a question about that because off the book work, illegible work is often more, some of the more important work in an organization. And it's an adaptation that the organization is using to survive when it's under incompetent allocation systems. So, so we, we, we really,
1: we understood that and what we'd all, we'd always give amnesty, We'd always be like, look, just get it on the book. We got to be able to understand where our where our stuff is going, you know, where is where are the resources going, where is the burn, and it, and it was we used agile as a mirror as opposed to necessarily a, uh, a corruption layer.
2: Well, this is this is like trying to get people to trust resettlement or like camps, right? You're like, oh, hey, we we want to move you into a legible, controllable space. Trust us. How do you do that? When they've had experiences that are like, anyone who's trying to herd you into an area delineated by chain link, do not go, right? <laughs> How do well, you think, overcome that?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, there's a couple of things that, that were really important about this. The CEO put out what his priorities were for the organization. That was in turn communicated to the board. We allocated our resources ac- across that. I would argue that the role of a CEO is to make decisions about resource allocation, like big decisions at the, at the most you, know, you know, massive level, the most uh, macroeconomic level for the organization. And at the end of the day, that then translates to what kind of rolls through the organization. Um, when I met with the CEO about these initiatives, he basically said to me in no uncertain terms, I will get my pound of flesh. It will either be the way the way that you've described in the value capture from the the business case, or I will just come in with a chainsaw and get it out like Scarface. And I was like, Roger that. Like, hey, man, I now know what I'm operating with. I know that either I do what I said I was going to do and deliver or you will go get it a different way. And the thing is, is that that is that is to me that that is honest dealing. If I'm in an honest game then I can play it. If I'm in a dishonest game and people are fucking around, then there is no way that you could be successful.
0: Yeah, this is the corporate courage that I had that I saw at our clients. The teaser for the thing we did in 2017 is, is your, uh, it's a recording of you saying you got to bet your badge. And you no. over and over bet your badge on these principles, selling them. And again, it is an astounding feat to me. We have,
1: we've been recording for a while. But, but, and we're, but yeah. one, one thing that's really important is that I also had the top cover from people, peers and people above me who said, hey, you know what? They understand, like their maturity around understanding that things are never going to go according to the original plan. That was something that I had not seen that level of maturity for. So I cannot take independent credit for this. I had people that were around me that were literally like, hey man, the lights are blinking fucking red over here. You need to go fix that. And we had to go at one point and recast our entire program. And we had to do that in front of the CEO. And the CEO was like, I was expecting you. And that maturity, I have not seen in too many organizations. Organizations that are dishonest in their dealings where they go and say, hey, you know what? Uh, If you bring me a recast of this program i'm going to red wedding the entire team guess what that is not that's not healthy okay now if i had to do another recast and another recast and another recast that would have been on me you
0: know yeah direct plug for david marquez leader leader model like we all of the stuff you're talking about is covered there so and we've covered that in a podcast uh here is We love the intro. I mean, uh, hearing the story of how people came along is so fantastic, but Jesse and I have a a very selfish concern here. There is, you know, conservatively 10,000 pivotal trained people who are leaderless and can't find an organization that wants their 3 to 10x capacity. Okay, put us on the couch. What do we need to do? Because the... The skill set is out there to literally move the world, the tool set, the ideas, and the people. It's all, it's all out there, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's not being used properly. So what do we need to become mature as, as a community, to be able to do the things that you have done? You, you have plenty of experience directly with Pivots and even Rob and things like that. What do we need to do in the community?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that we saw that we did with the pivots that we worked with was we created a set of exemplars at multiple level, levels of capability. And what that in turn means is that people could see themselves in the journey. So it'd be one thing, you know, like if you, if you, you know, let's use a, uh, you know, an Olympics example. If you watch the people that do, you know, Olympic level volleyball, and you're like, yeah, that looks really easy. It's because they're all operating at the same level of capability and you know their they're comp- competitive base is at their relative match. Now, if you took a junior high school team and you put them up against that Olympic volleyball team, they would be absolutely destroyed. Okay, So what we did is we showed them like, hey, this is what JV looks like. This is what varsity looks like. This is what the Olympic level looks like. And based on what we're observing about your behaviors this is how you are going to fit into this into this exemplar model so i don't expect the jv team to be operating at the same way i expected you know in my analogy i'll use i'll use a a a startup that we acquired for 10 to 20 million dollars i don't expect to be operating the same way that the 911 system and backbone for north america I could not take those two operating models and go and say, hey, I have one. Bam. What I needed to do is I needed to go and say, hey, this is what the journey looks like for you. And this is where I think that folks that do pivotal uh, principles, ThoughtWorks principles, XP principles, DORA principles, Agile software development principles, it doesn't matter. What you need to do is what is the incremental change that you need to be able to or can bring to the table that the system doesn't spit it out as a, as a foreign body. And that's the, where I always looked at it. It was like, how do you go and say, hey, you know what? Do you disagree with, like, I can't imagine anybody going and say, hey, you know what? I hate feedback loops. It's not going to happen. It's just, it's like, it's like, that's that's just one of those things that like, you know, there. it's like apple pie, oxygen, you know, so on and so forth. And as soon as you get them past the, those, those like, I, I think you call it learning tantrums, I think was the one that you, you talked about. Once you get them over their learning tantrums, they then all of a sudden, you know the practices that used to be impossible are now easy, and you see them on this journey. And it's 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 very much a you know you can't you might be able to show them what the Olympic level volleyball team looks like, but you know what you got to give them a path to get there.
2: You know, so I, I have a hypothesis that someone who believes everything that you say and and goes out and tries to do this at wherever they happen to be employed right now is going to feel pretty burned out a few months into this, if they don't happen to have the right conditions in their organization, which they may or may not be able to proceed. Like if you're at a level where you've never heard of whoever the finance people responsible for decisions around how your organization is budgeted are, this stuff is just not going to be available unless you happen to be somewhere that is already trying to do this. Is that true? Like, is that impression like, is this something where you can play it wherever you find it? Or is this something where a lot of the time you're going to have to leave before you can start?
1: Well, I think that, um, so, the, so there's this there's this notion that I I I believe that you have um you know an A team, a B team, and a C team, an A P. And I'm not talking about these are not like levels of of grade. This is just my A team was I was on the CIO's team. I had a set of peers. Those are the people I was laterally accountable to mm-hmm. that we all rolled up to the CIO. Okay. Sure. My B team would have been all my direct reports rolling up to me and their lateral relationships and accountability to each other, okay? And then in turn, a C team would have been their direct reports and their relationships and so on and so forth and how they're going to work. And it's just this nesting of the organization, okay? Um, But what I would argue is that each group has a set of responsibilities. And the thing is, is that if you're at a, you know, tech lead level inside an organization, and you're making decisions around the application that's moving on the platform, you have a different set of roles and responsibilities than somebody that's actually operating the platform, okay? Versus the enablement team, versus these other kinds of things. But the thing I would, would say, Jesse, is this, is that each one of those A, B, and C teams have a set of responsibilities to understand what we're all driving to together. Now, if you are one voice screaming into the void, then you are probably going to be dissatisfied with where you are. But if you are able to get, you know, your team to be able to do this, like, for example, we did, um, we did, uh, we call them uh, brown bags or lunch and learns or, you know, whatever those things were. And what we do is because we're a very large distributed team, globally distributed team, we would have people that would come together and they would talk about what they're doing what worked and what didn't and it wasn't a governance meeting it wasn't anything other than just like hey just tell us about what you do it was not uncommon for us to have products in the portfolio of people that had no clue as to what they were doing but they would see that somebody was doing something that they were like look i see what we're doing over there as well and that gave them some degree of i would say hope
0: <laughs> okay you're listening to radio free xp our guest is thomas squale Okay, Thomas, I, I I get it. We're we're gonna brute force this. You know the general skill set of an XPR, and Jesse and I. Let's pretend that Jesse and I have discovered we know the same kinds of things, and we have the same beliefs, and we're just at a random global two thousand. We are just mm-hmm. staff members at a random global two thousand, and we decided just to take a pure, lean, very curious, not all that like aggressive approach to figuring out could we be that's just the question a hypothesis if we did a few things we would be successful and let's just say that we listened to you and and we heard this key magic thing because we think we're pretty good at much of the technology and even service mm-hmm. delivery things we think we're good at that but we know we're not good at finance and we and, and we're taking that on is like hey that is a huge area we don't know anything about but we need to do something okay jesse and i are at any global two thousand. And we need to get this question about what the finance team actually wants and how they think we need to get it answered as a as just product discovery as client discovery. What do we do?
1: Well, I think it's, it's just like any kind of, uh, you know, customer mapping, you just add them as stakeholders. What is important to them? You know, when we started the call out today, the first thing I said is what does success look like for you on this call? That same conversation needs to happen with whoever's operating your business case. That's and there's perfect. ideas that success could very well be like, look, I don't want you to overspend. I don't give a fuck how long it takes. I just don't want you to spend more money than you have. OK, now these are different operating environments, like a high growth firm might be like, look, I'll just throw money at the problem until you get to the solution. And another organization, they might be financially constrained where they're like, look, I'm going to spend this dollar. But if you spend past this dollar, I'm going to destroy you. Okay. Okay. You're, you're, you're you're answering,
0: you're answering as an executive, Jesse and I are a couple Jesse is senior engineer three and I'm senior engineer two. That's our, that's our job titles. That's our roles. And so if I want to talk to anyone in finance, which may be in a foreign capital, okay, what do I do? How do I start establishing any path as you know, like engineer one, two, three, toward the thing that you're saying, I believe exactly what you're saying, and I need a path.
2: And to be clear, one of the reasons I like startup is because startups and because why well, I'm becoming interested in them is that I know the answer there. Because yes. the team's small enough that I can just talk to that person. Yes, right. So my ability to evaluate the business and the environment and to be effective and to make effective change, just obviously easily higher to me because I understand how to navigate that situation. You get to one of these large uh, corporations, and that ability—I I can't answer the question Tony just asked,
1: but maybe you can. So, so I would, I would uh, violently agree that startups are the environment where you get to make the greatest amount of change. But you are there's a different set of of limiting factors on the startup environment than there are elsewhere. You can you can make the ideal working environment, and then you're now operating against that as you scale up. Those those business practices are really kind of you know, they're they're part of the culture, they're part of the belief system, they're part of the ways of working, and so on and so forth. In a, in a Fortune 2000, the way that this would be done is that your path to finance is typically through the product manager, okay? I'm, I'm assuming that any engineering team is working on either the product, the platform, or the infrastructure. And if you're working on the product or the platform, then there's typically a product manager or a platform owner that has some responsibility to report how things are operating. And that's a conversation. They they know what they're being measured on. And I'm not talking about metrics on like, like you know, application scalability and stability and so on and so forth. I'm not talking about those metrics. I'm talking about like, you know, uh, is it market share? Is it customer satisfaction? Is it, you know, um, you know uh, the the resources being utilized as it kind of moves through this system and so on and so forth. But the thing is, is that each, that metric then translates to money. The first three questions that I, I ask for when I join any organization is who is on the team? What are they working on? What do they cost? That's all I need to know. Because from that, I then can go and say, oh, are we working on things that are valuable? Because the thing is, is that if I go and say, are we working on things that are valuable? Somebody's going to be like, of course we are. And we have 80% of our people working on that thing. And then I'll go and say, well, how much money is that making for our organization? What outcomes is it driving for our organization? And then usually you could pretty much look at whether or not the balances are there or not. Because if they're out of balance, it's pretty obvious. And people pretty much know already, okay? Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, so Jesse and I are, are senior engineers on a team. We're looking at each other and we're like, man, I think we could get five X more on measured features a year. That is we ship 20 features and we could get a hundred features out a year if we just took this on. And then we say to our manager, Hey, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Oh, priorities for this quarter are this and priorities for the next five quarters are this no one's interested in a 10 X bump on feature set. That's literally what's going to happen, so.
1: Yeah, um, I I mean, but the the thing is, so.
0: But wait, let me me just finish, because I want to write a letter. I want to write a note to my CFO or my controller or something. And I want to articulate what I know to be true to them. And I want to start working with them to find the common language. The thing that I've got in
2: you is that you know all the language. Well, and I think that that's a wonderful thing to want, but just to put my biases on the table, I don't think that's going to work. I think the whole organization is immunized against people at low levels, writing levels to people at high level, writing letters to people at high levels. So, that's why
0: you have to have a very good vector, right? That's what we're looking for. And the language and meeting what finance, there's no one in finance, we all know, like I'll tell my dumb story about the way GCP sells, they have a team that does more than one hundred. billion deals a year. And they do it because they walk up to a CFO and they say, we can tell us what you pay for your data centers and we'll just cut 30% off of it forever. And those CFOs sign that deal. Mm -hmm. Yet internally you say, Hey, we're on a team and we would like to demonstrate how we can get a 10 X feature flow across my team and probably across every team. How would you get anyone interested in it? The same people who will take thirty percent as a career-making deal will not take ten x incrementally built across an organization. So, well, they don't believe you. That that right? There is no, <laughs> but at this point, that that belief is now a childish belief. You are like, well, hey I, guys. Think
1: that, I, think, I mean, the the core assumption that I have is that the organization is willing to run an experiment. Because the thing is, is if anybody brings that to me. I would be like, let's, let's prove it. And the thing is, let's prove it in a little Dyson sphere where it's walled off from everything else. And you will have like, what does it take to do that? And if it works, then we should be, uh, you know, we should be repeating it over and over and over again.
2: Well, and And so I want to be careful about some of something I just realized about my personal experience. Uh, I stayed behind at VMware to watch what happened with my hypothesis being that Pivotal would die and I would get to see how the various pieces of the process uh, mutually support each other by watching them be removed and other parts of it collapse. And that is more or less what happened. I tried to do other things and I had some interesting successes, but ultimately this was an acquisition where uh, VMware won, they bought Pivotal and then they assimilated Pivotal, right? (laughs) They, They were like, you're going to work the new way. And so some of my experience of, oh, it just like no one will listen may come from an environment where this acquisition was closed and the, the value propositions about the business or the possibility, even a desire to have more features in the area that I was working on. And I'm going to note briefly for Tony that like, I don't know that you even get 10 X features, right? You get less features. Sometimes it's just that they're the right ones, right? (laughs) Like what, however you want to phrase this productivity gain. I think some of my experience that I'm pushing back on this, like, well, we weren't, we, we were being digested and it's a lot harder to say, Hey, I have this experiment I want you to run. And I want us to create this protected area when, the objectives of a lot of the people who are in the chain of command for that organization are, well, integrate this, make it work the normal way that our company works. Like that's what they're being measured on or asked to do in the first place. So, you know, maybe that's one of the hints that it's like, well, this just isn't going to work. And uh, organizations that are doing fine and understand the value of the business unit and then are like, Hey, yeah, you're doing fine. Someone brings to them, but we could do much better maybe it's actually easier than in an organization that already offers this high capability in a way that is not understood and is in the process of being disassembled
1: well so there's there's one of the factors and this is i, I don't know the inner workings of the transactions or, yeah. or any of that, that kind of thing but there is a period where integration so i my theory of action on any acquisition that i've ever done that's been successful is make the change at the time of the uh the transaction you don't let it sit and, and, and wait, and then come in later on and and do something. You literally like the transaction is done. We're going to change certain aspects of how we're actually going to deliver or work or, or, you know, what we're going to keep, who we're going to get rid of. So on and so forth, those are done within the first 30 days. And the reason why I think that that's important is because there is a way of working that needs to be understood. But the thing is, is that usually during the, um, the due diligence phase, I will also have worked with people that will go and say, these are the things we're going to take from that organization and, and we're going to adapt into our own uh, workflow. In a very large organization, because that was a multi-billion dollar acquisition, what ab- ends up happening is that, um, you know, if the leadership's not there anymore to protect the way of working and what was important, then it's going to be one of the first things that is sacrificed.
2: And and just that's, that's what we saw, right? Like maybe there was no way that this was, you said something like your product manager is a path to finance. Well, the product managers were like withdrawn in a, in a chaos of reorging and the, the way of working where people were very focused on delivering outcomes that are tied directly to understandings about the customer or what was They were trying to shove towards this model where engineering managers are responsible for the output of engineering teams. And so like they didn't they didn't do it at the time of the transaction necessarily, but there was a large reorganization that was sort of similar to. The time of transaction, like it just didn't happen to line up, but like there was a big moment and from that moment on. Ability, like I would say, capabilities could only, you couldn't go back to the pivotal way. Structurally, the support wasn't there at all. And I, you know, I don't want to overfit into the general case from something where there was such a strong momentum and inevitability towards, oh, we're going to have to do management the standard way that the host organization does management. We don't have room to do an experiment of what if we keep doing it the way we were before we were acquired, because that's not an experiment to the people who would need to be sold on it. That's an anti-goal. That's like, no, we're, we're integrating you. We don't want you experimenting with not being integrated, essentially. Yeah. So,
1: And I and I, 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 empathize with both sides. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, because like, yeah. I've, I've been, I mean, I've been, you know, more than 30 acquisitions and more than 10 divestitures or sales. And the thing is, is that the behaviors and motivations of each are are all unique. And I think that um, what I do think is out there to kind of come back full circle to an earlier question that Tony, you had was, you know, I look for people that I look for certain mindsets in the people I work with and nobody works for me. They work with me and it's either they work with me or they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. Okay. But I am going to expect that you have a certain outlook towards your life and your behaviors and so on. And so forth. And, and when I say life, I'm talking about your, your, you know, the, the intersection between professional and personal is usually, you know, people have a, have a uh, value and belief system that they're going to bring to, to the way they work. And if they're going to go and say, Hey, look, man, I want to do TPS reports and I don't want to think and I want to come in and I want to, and and somebody's going to give me a ticket and I'm going to work that ticket and I'm going to leave and I'm going to do my thing. That's different than I'm going to be intellectually interested in the ways that I can improve my, my work. And no, nobody is a finished product. No organization is a finished product. The thing is, is that I do know that there is a, um, you, 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 if you don't have any system of values or belief system, then you will probably be ground into dust by one of these organizations you know and i think that that that's that's one of those things where i look at like i I view the global 2000 as as kind of a um you know that there that is the that's the sweet spot that's where i work you know that's where i go you know and whether and and some of the work that we've done in the public sector and 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 so on and so forth i i see the similar problems but different Uh, time scales or or, or so on and so forth. And I'm talking specifically about like DOD and services and so on and so forth. Just their, their scales are just, you know, completely different than the corporate.
2: So one test that would differentiate between the situation I'm describing as sort of irrecoverable and the situation that you're describing as the sweet spot is the presence of enfranchised leaders that you can experience some faith in and collaboration with.
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I, I would, I would say that that goes for every A team, B team, C team. If you're looking around and you look at the people that you're working with and they're just, they just don't see the world and the way of working the same way you do. It's probably not, going. I mean, you know, it, it might not be the environment for that person. Okay. The thing is, is that um, I know every, everybody I know that's been at Pivotal or ThoughtWorks or you know, some of the folks that I know at work at Google or Amazon or so on and so forth, um, they 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 know what their tribe is. They know what they look like. They know they know what the behaviors are, and I think that that's something that you know, when you know that, it's awesome. You know, it's one of the reasons why Tony, you and I, you know, kept in contact for a couple of years. You know, Jesse, I would be stoked to be on a team with you. You know, yeah, um, likewise. But the thing, but notice, we haven't had any conversation about technology. This is not a technology problem. This is a way of working problem.
0: Oh, my goodness. You're listening to Radio Free XP with Thomas <laughs> Squale. We've been recording for about an hour and a half, which, is, uh, which runs anyone off the end. Thomas, you have to come back because we just we, we, as a public service, we have to write this letter, this form letter that any pivot can start probing their organization for almost free. Hey, I'm gonna send this to a controller in finance. I'm gonna find a controller's name in finance. I'm gonna send them this idea. And I'm gonna say, "Hey, I'm looking. I'm not looking to turn this around today, but I need someone who can translate my language into finance language.
1: And it could be a chief of staff. It could be many different roles because the thing is, is that navigating a finance organization has the same issues that it does with any other part of the organization. They, they you know, they select for behavior, you know.
0: Okay, what's the iterative path to completing the circuit about what we would know about productivity, path to production, models and all of that. What's the so I would say the next episode is that. How do we complete the circuit from where we're at to the global 2000 like frequently get acquired because their garbage performance. Mm -hmm. that's why they that's what private like you didn't say it that like private equity is like oh there's a bunch of idiots running a company that we can get for cheap we can throw them out and then we can do a lot of really construct private equity is not pretty i'm just going to say it they have a standard set of tools with which they extract cost and then they turn around and sell it regardless and their goal is not to leave the people in the company in good like emotional shape that is not their goal
1: well they those those um so the thing about it is that my observation is that they are very clear eyed in what they're doing. And if you understand that they are operating from a model and they do not care about the 10X productivity problem, they don't, they don't. Okay. That is a very core thing. So the thing about it is like, if, if I went to the senior leadership and I said, hey, we're going to build a great culture and we're going to do all these kind of things. They're like, that's a virtuous byproduct of you delivering what you've committed to. I don't need that to satisfy my overlords. What I need is that you hit your targets. Now, the way that that translates between hitting your model targets and the, the, the developing a culture that people weren't going to run away from is being able to go and say, OK, I can deliver that motivation, that outcome, and I can do so in a way that is going to be in an organization that I want to be a part of. And I looked at it and I said, okay, how do we build the organization that I want to be a part of? If I was going to go to have a conversation with Rob Mee and we were going to like, you know, grab dinner somewhere and we're going to talk about what we're doing, you know, ripping out every third rafter and hoping the building doesn't fall down is not something that I'd be like, hey, man, that's my career fucking win. You know, no, but what it was is we made ourselves a destination employer. We were able to improve every dimension of how we delivered on technology, and we made ourselves an organization that was an exemplar for things. Now, the overlords cared about, does that sell? Is it black? Is it yellow? Or is it red? That's all they cared about. Okay. Now, if you understand that and you don't, and you go in clear eyed with that, then you can work in that environment. But if you don't have that, if, you, if you're delusional and you think that they care about your 10X improvement, their 10X improvement only requires two things, top-line growth or EBITDA improvement. That's all they care, that's it, zero, nothing else. All right, the character of private equity. If you look at VCs, VCs are like, look, I'm gonna give you an investment and I'm going to expect that you are going to 10X the growth side of things and that doesn't necessarily mean that the EBITDA, the profitability, is there. So the thing that was interesting, and this is, and, I, and I'm, and I'm really digressing a little bit here, but it's important. We were in our markets delivering forty plus percent EBITDA, and we were valued, we were penalized in our valuation compared to some new market entrants that had, you know, that were going after high growth. And what we saw was, and this is between, you know, 2018 and 2022, uh, what we saw was it was like, look, the 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 shore will be littered with the bodies of these companies. Because what's going to happen is that there's going to be a realization that they don't have any of the, 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 the basics of how to run a business down. And when we went through that process, we were like, oh, we're operating different percentages of EBITDA or different uh, top line growth. We weren't getting, the, the the great valuations or you know the, all that kind of stuff. But what we were able to do was that when you know when the when the worm turned, uh, we were still alive.
2: All right, I've been thinking a lot about the things that we do, and I've been challenging Tony and some of our guests on how many of the things that we know are good, the the new ways of working that we enjoy, that are productive, that deliver our goals, are neither necessary nor sufficient. And we need to understand that we're living in a world where they might have a big impact. They might be really helpful. They're a way to accomplish things. But people get things done the conventional way all the time. Mm -hmm. People have a lot of experience with the conventional way, working constantly. And it's probably what's happening all around you. Improvement is neither necessary nor sufficient most of the time, most places. But, you know, as you said, when the worm turns, when things happen, if you've made this marginal impact, you get to survive. And there are lots of ways to do it. I think the way that we've been talking about and the way that you know how to do things is an impactful and likely to be successful approach. It has that marginal impact on the chance of survival. A lot of people have been demoralized by the way that Pivotal was acquired, like one of these run by idiots acquired and taken apart by private equity things. But that's not the story of what happened to us, I don't think. And even if it was, it's a percentage game. You know, the stuff is neither necessary or sufficient. It's at the margin. Even if we were doing pretty well, there's a lot of other things that can happen where you don't get to survive. So I really appreciate this conversation and I hope we get to have another chapter of it around the experience of having that marginal impact or not figuring out where you can do it or, and where you can't, and getting in positions where you get to try and where you get to try again and where you get to grow and come out stronger. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you everybody for joining us for today's episode of Radio Free XP. We're recording on Wednesday, November 15th. It's been uh, me, Jesse Alford, my co-host, Tony Hansman, and our guest, Thomas Squale. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free XP. If you're interested in helping with graphics, bumper music, or other aspects of production, or if you'd like to be on the show, please contact Jesse Alford or Tony Hansman on the Pivotal Alum Slack. You can also reach us via email at jesse.alford at pm.me or precept at gmail.com, respectively.